You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everyone. This is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. I am so excited for this interview today, as we will be talking all about fish, fishing, freshwater, conservation, and science. And of course, we're going to learn a lot more about really, really big and rare megafish. Today, I'll be talking with fish biologist, explorer, and photographer, Seb Hogan, all about his career as a scientist and how he became the beloved host of the National Geographic TV series, Monster Fish. We'll also be talking all about his quest to save megafish from extinction and his new book called Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. This book focuses on his quest to learn more about and save these big, beautiful, and rare freshwater fish. So I'm honored today to welcome Zeb. Hello, thank you for being here. Hey, so glad to be with you. Uh, I'm just, I come from a long line of people that love freshwater, love fishing. My grandfather, uh, my father, he was actually more of a catch and release uh, sport fisherman. And now I have three boys and my eldest son is just, just wants to know more about water, the fish that live in it, their biology. And he is a huge fan and tries to stay up late at night watching monster fish. And so it's just a real privilege to talk to you today, Zeb. And uh, I just, I can't wait to learn more. Great. And so before we get started, I was hoping that you could uh, give our listeners a little background about yourself, your education, and your research interests. I grew up outside of Phoenix, Arizona. So I actually, even though I study freshwater fish, uh, I grew up outside of Phoenix uh, in a town called Tempe. It's a college town. My dad was a economics professor at Arizona State University. And I grew up, you know, might not make sense at first, but if you think about it, Arizona, Phoenix, it was very hot. Uh, I always wanted to be near the water. I loved animals. I grew up watching nature shows. Uh, I grew up, you know, fascinated by the outdoors. And so every chance I got, I would um, go explore our local creeks or even canals city ponds. I'd go... After it rains. Yeah, exactly. I'd go fishing if uh, I had a chance. 
And then where when my interest really started to take off, you know, I knew I loved animals. I knew I loved outdoors. I loved water. And when I was in junior high, or maybe it was the first year of high school, um, I got the idea. I wanted to volunteer at an aquarium, but we didn't have any aquarium uh, where I lived. So I wrote to aquariums all over the U.S., asked if they had volunteer programs. And as it turns out, a, a small aquarium in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, uh, stop it what is i love woods hole uh my husband and his family's from boston and uh we go to the cape sometimes and that's where woods hole is and so we've been yeah so i've never i've never i mean i had never been to woods hole before but as it turned out a neighbor down the street they were originally from boston they spent their summers in falmouth i'm gonna get all not gonna be able to say no falmouth yes i spend so if I'm once in a great while, when I'm lucky enough, I spend a week in the summer in Falmouth. Yeah. So they spent summers there and they were kind enough to let me stay with them for a month that summer while uh-huh. I volunteered at the aquarium. So uh, my job was to collect. I cleaned the tanks, obviously. I did some collections of small fish for the tanks. And then they would every once in a while, let there were they had two uh, rescue seals named Cecil and Skeezix. And so I would do the show. It wasn't much of a show, but I, I had a pail of fish and I would go out and I would feed Cecil and Skeezix and talk about them to whoever was at the aquarium that day. So that was a wonderful experience. Uh, sort of, that was my first exposure to sort of understanding how I could turn my interest into career, although I was still pretty young at that point. And then I did an undergraduate degree in ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona. My summer job was doing native fish surveys in the tributaries that flow into the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, in Grand Canyon National Park. So people think of the Grand Canyon as this huge canyon in the high desert of Arizona. It's a if you go down to the bottom, the bottom in the bottom of the canyon is Colorado River, and there are all of these small streams flow into the Colorado uh, in can- you know, through narrow desert canyons of their own. And my summer job was working with a team uh, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, hiking up all of these streams and collecting fish, counting them, learning which, which species were there, whether or not there were healthy populations. So that I did three summers of that and that really, I would say, got me started. I said, hey, I can do this. I was, you know, I was earning $5 an hour uh, doing something I thought was really cool. So I, I thought, hey, I, I love this. I want to see if I can do this for, you know, for a career. Wow. And it does, because I'm trying to think like, oh, how did he pick fish over marine mammals? Like after you were introduced to the seals at Woods Hole Aquarium. But now I can see if you're around the Grand Canyon at the base doing all these all the work in the streams with the fish there I can I can visualize how how special that would be and how important and how you'd fall in love with that yeah and I love the ocean but you know being in Arizona I was just had their desert you know Arizona has these desert streams and in Arizona if where there's water there's life so anywhere that I would go and there would be a creek or a pond it would be full of life full of fish and turtles and snakes and all kinds of things. So I always associated freshwater with life and with interesting creatures and exploration. 
And I didn't have that experience. People who live, grew up on the coast probably grow up with those same experiences, um, you know, with tide pools and the ocean, but I never had that. So I was always pretty focused on freshwater. And as it turns out, it was good. You know, I hear a lot of people who want to be marine biologists. And that's essentially what I do. There's not a really good term for what I am. I'm essentially a marine biologist, but for freshwater. I'm a freshwater ecologist. And so I do a lot of the same things that marine biologists do, but with a focus on on freshwater and freshwater fish. Yeah. And so uh, now, Zeb, if you could walk me through, you had your aha moment in the Grand Canyon and you're doing all these internships and you're at Arizona State. Was it Arizona State? Uh, it was University of Arizona. University of Arizona. And you're at the University of Arizona. So I'm assuming you get the PhD and you study more things about freshwater ecology. Um, if you wouldn't mind touching on that and then how the how did that transfer uh, from being the fish ecologist or um, freshwater ecologist to becoming uh, the TV host for National Geographic, which is probably most animal lovers dream. Uh, so how, how do you, how do you go from point A to point B and get that dream job? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a fully, it was step by step and I didn't know what was going to happen as I was moving through my life. I did go on and get a PhD at the university of California, Davis. Uh, I would say the next aha moment that I had was that between undergraduate and graduate school, I applied for what's called a Fulbright scholarship which is a great scholarship. It's available both for people who live in the U.S. and people who live internationally. If you live in the U.S., it provides an opportunity to go study abroad. If you live abroad in country outside of the U.S., you can come to the U.S. and study. Uh, and so after I finished at University of Arizona, I applied for a Fulbright. I was selected as an alternate, so I was not selected. And no, no, but the, but someone dropped out. I love out. where this is but, going. I love, well, someone, I, I love the underdog story. So yeah, I someone, mean, a, someone dropped out. Well, and, and the reason I say that is because I, you know, I've always, you know, been enthusiastic and looked for opportunities, but not every opportunity works out. And so I've had lots of opportunities that I was excited about that didn't work out. This was an opportunity that nearly didn't work out. So I was selected as an alternate, but then someone couldn't go. And so I, you know, after someone dropped out, I then received the Fulbright scholarship to go study in Thailand. And as it turns out, in Thailand, there's the Mekong River that flows through Southeast Asia. It's one of the largest rivers in the world. And the issues that I was studying on the Colorado River, which were native fish, the impacts of large dams, the impacts of invasive species, of changing the way a river flows, there were plans to dam the Mekong River. And so all of the issues that I'd learned about on the Colorado, uh, they were very applicable to the Mekong. So I went to the Mekong and tried to understand what was happening there in the context of what I'd learned in the Colorado River. And so it was, I'd never been to Asia before. It was absolutely fascinating. It, a fish lover's dream, their Mekong has about a thousand different kinds of fish. The river itself produces 2 million tons of fish a year. So just a absolutely astounding quantity of fish. So as someone who is interested in fish, uh, you know, some places I've been, Arizona, I guess, as an example of this, I had to sort of justify why I was interested in fish and why fish were important. And 
in Thailand, in the Mekong region, you, you don't have to do that. Everyone appreciates the importance of fish. Everyone's eating fish. Um, there are some of the largest fish in the world that live in the Mekong, which is sort of how I got started with big fish. And that's also how I got started with National Geographic. So this may also um, be of interest to your listeners. National Geographic uh, provides grants, especially for young younger people, people undergrads or graduate students who are kind of starting out in their careers, they provide small research grants. And so I received a small research grant from National Geographic to do my work on migratory fish in the Mekong. And then once I had received that grant, then you have the opportunity. It's not guaranteed, or, but there's a connection there. Once you have a grant, then there's a potential opportunity to work with the magazine or work with the, the, the National Geographic television and do connect into some of their media um, media partnerships. And so that's what happened to me is I started out with a research grant and then ultimately ended up working with them on a television show called, called Monster Fish. Wow. that I just, that is such an amazing story. And I just really love how you talk about there are tons of triumphs in somebody's career as they're spying to help wildlife and learn more about science. But in the same instance, there's also a lot of letdowns. I too was uh, rejected from my initial graduate program, wildlife ecology that I applied to because my test scores weren't quite high enough, which is fine. Uh, I've never been a good test taker. And I uh, was working full time when I took the GRE. So you can imagine it was pretty tough. And my second program uh, that I applied for ended up being animal sciences because, well, an animal's an animal, and I do love physiology and behavior, so they had similar classes. And lo and behold, it was such the better fit. And then yeah, so it's on funny and so how, forth. How that works out sometimes. It is. I, one of the reasons I did Fulbright is that I initially applied to graduate school at the University of Washington and was not did not was not admitted, did not was not successful, and so took a year, and ended up applying for Fulbright. Did that. And then went on to UC Davis and it worked out perfectly. So, yeah. So it's does. just, yeah, there's a lot of, there's always a few steps forward and a few steps back. And I think that that's just how life is. And so, uh, when you're passionate about something and you want to work towards uh, your education or your research, it, it's, uh, it's good to have a stiff upper lip and just keep trying, right? Like, yeah. They're going to say, every time passion, they say no, you got to wait till they say yes. Yeah. Passion, persistence, and hard work, I think, are three attributes that can go go a long way and you know just keeping an eye out for opportunities trying to keep an open mind because some things just won't work out so i you know if someone asked me how do i get to host a television show about fish on you know national geographic the chances of that um are very small i'm you know it's possible i guess but it's you know that's probably i couldn't really give someone advice about how to do that i sort of fell into it um you know whereas if if a person is interested in freshwater fish or the outdoors or you know studying biology the there's a path there and um i have friends i went to graduate school some of them work at universities now some of them work in aquar at aquariums uh, some of them work with the federal government some of them work for international conservation organizations so just have to keep trying and keep looking and see see what works. Yeah, for sure. And and 
just to let our listeners know that aren't as familiar with Monster Fish, uh, would you mind, Zeb, giving us a little bit about the origin story of Monster Fish and a few examples of where you got to travel and what you saw while filming that series? Monster Fish uh, was produced by National Geographic, uh, aired on National Geographic and Nat Geo Wild. We filmed our first show in 2007, so quite a, a while ago. And I was working in the Mekong uh, region at the time, working with fishermen who were catching some of the biggest freshwater fish in the world. So in 2005, uh, fishermen that I was working with in northern Thailand caught a 646-pound Mekong giant catfish. Uh, oh, so my, I, I can't and even that, visualize and that. That is a they're big very big. Fish. Yeah, you can go, you can Google it. You know, the giant, photo, okay, record yeah. giant catfish or something like that. And at the time, that was the world record for largest freshwater fish. And that was in 2005. I was also working with fishermen in Cambodia who were catching Mekong giant catfish. Uh, we, the fishermen there, we caught and released one fish that was about 640 pounds. And they were also catching giant carp, which is the world's largest carp species. It's Catlocarpio siamensis, can get up to about 600 pounds. And then also giant freshwater stingray, which can grow over 600 pounds. And so I was uh, gradually getting more interested in these big fish. I didn't know they existed before I went to Southeast Asia. So it was a surprise for me as well. They're all endangered. No one was doing much research on them. And so it seemed to be a gap. It, I was fascinated, but also there seemed to be a gap in terms of our knowledge about them. And so in 2005, uh, I started working more formally with National Geographic, also had the help of World Wildlife Fund. And we, I launched a project all about to find, study, and protect the world's largest freshwater fish. And so that started after that 646-pound catfish was caught. A few years later, um, National Geographic, we produced a little trailer. We produced a five-minute uh, trailer about these big fish and sent it to National Geographic. And they decided that they were interested. They wanted, they wanted to see what a television show would look like. And so I worked with a production company based in Thailand. We produced a one-hour television show about Mekong Giant Catfish. It was aired, aired on National Geographic Channel, and it did well. So the way... My experience with television is that um, if the shows do well, then they renew the series. They ask for more shows. If it's not very popular, then it kind of fizzles out. So at that stage, people hadn't seen these fish before. They were so big. They were fascinating. And so the show, the first show did well. So they kept commissioning additional shows. So we ended up filming over 30 shows. So uh, each show is an hour long. So 30 hours of programming. Over about 10 years, we filmed the last show. We haven't filmed since COVID, so we filmed the last show in 2018. Um, and each show, the format, we've traveled all over the world. Each show, we focus on a different species of giant fish. So the first season, we did Mekong giant catfish. We did giant stingray, alligator gar in the U.S., white sturgeon, uh, American paddlefish, Wells catfish in Europe. And over... we. Film between anywhere between two and six shows a year. Each show took about two weeks. Uh, we go out with a film of four or five people. We usually have two cameramen, one cameraman that films above water and one cameraman that films below. 
a producer that kind of tells everyone what to do, uh, associate or assistant producer that helps with just logistics and or, or helping arrange everything. And then the format of the show is I would travel to a location on the search for one of these big fish and immediately meet up with local fishermen, local scientists, go to local fish markets and just start learning about the fish that we were looking for, gathering information. Can I find it? Where's the best place to catch it? What do scientists already know about it? Uh, and then usually if, if the show, if it worked out, this almost always happened at the end, then we are able to find uh, the fish and the audience gets to see it. So that was the format that most most show, shows followed that format. Yeah. And the ones that I've seen, you always catch and release them, right? You try to learn more about them and always release them uh, so they can obviously swim away and yeah. have some data. Everything that I do is catch and release. And some of the shows, some fishing shows are really focused on fishing. Monster sure. Fish, we usually have a fishing component. Sometimes it's me fishing, but other times we might go out with local fishermen or we might go out with a, a lot of times, almost every show we go out with scientists and they are catching the fish to study it. So we would, we'll go out with local scientists. They might be tagging the fish. They might uh, need a DNA sample. I mean, I'm trying to think of some specific examples. The alligator gar, you know, they might be interested in how old they can grow. Uh, everything that I do is catch and release if it's either for the show or for my research you know occasionally we would go out with commercial fishermen and then they're obviously catching the fish either for food or to sell i don't have a problem with that but that's not what i do personally and for my research so we've been doing a lot of work on giant freshwater stingray recently and we were able to um, work with fishermen and those fish are normally harvested but we were able to work with the fishermen um, collect our information that we needed, tag the fish, and then release it live back into the, the river. So that's always that always feels good to um, be able to get a fish back, especially a big endangered fish, um, to get it back in the river. Yeah, and and I was up after filming for over ten years and traveling all across the world with uh, with monster fish. What are some things that you took away after chasing these large endangered and bizarre, if you will, creatures. What were some, some takeaways? These fish, giant fish, it's a diverse assemblage of fish. You know, some kinds of fish people have heard of before, giant catfish, giant carp, but also quite a few unusual fish. There's air-breathing arapaima in South America, electric eel that can generate shocks up to 700, 800 volts, uh, freshwater stingray freshwater sharks uh, they're ancient fish you know like alligator gar and sturgeon that have been on earth for 100 million years in fairly similar form so it's a pretty it's a fascinating group of fish and for my project i was focused on fish that grow larger than six feet way more than uh, 200 pounds or grow longer than six feet that was kind of arbitrary i said hey if it's, it's bigger than a person and it lives in fresh water. That's a giant fish. And there are about 30, 30 to 40 fish that get that big. One aspect of giant fish that came clear, unfortunately came clear very quickly, is most of them are at risk of extinction. They're, you know, they're overfished. They need healthy habitats. They need big areas. 
And so populations of most of these fish have really declined. And that was that's part of my work as well, is to try to understand their ecology in order to, to figure out ways to protect them. And so you have a fish, some of these fish, the catfish in the Amazon make some of the longest migrations of any animal on earth. So 10,000 kilometers from the foothills of the Andes down to the estuary and then back. Other kinds of giant fish like giant freshwater stingray appear to, especially the females, appear to stay in like 20 to 30 kilometer stretches of river. I don't know if it's for their whole life, but during the period when we were when we were monitoring them. So, and these are the ones in Thailand. Yeah, in Thailand. Yeah, but very, you know, diverse life histories. Uh, every fish is unique. Every fish has its own personality. The sturgeon can be, in my experience, you know, don't like. I get in the water with a fish a lot. The sturgeon sort of don't mind, don't pay much attention. A giant trout, for some reason, they're the biggest fish in the river. They can get up to six feet long. This is a species that lives in Mongolia. You know, they're very skittish. I think it's because they uh, are aggressive with each other. So they're very skittish around other big things in the water. So they don't like it when something bigger than them is with them. The stingray can be very curious. They seem to sense other animals and prey, you know, food and other fish in the water with their snout. The freshwater stingray has a pointed snout. And they'll actually even come up and they kind of tap their their snout. Uh, oh, a little snout bump. Yeah. Yeah, snout bump. Uh, so they're, they, they're one of the more curious fish. So every fish is a little bit different, um, reacts differently to people. No, no, none of the fish that I've uh, encountered particularly enjoy being caught, uh, but we try to be gentle with the fish uh, for two reasons. One, we don't want to hurt the fish. And then secondly, these are big fish. And they're, for your listeners who are, see these fish, you can Google, you know, giant freshwater fish, giant stingray, giant catfish. They, they, some people find them scary looking. I think they're beautiful, but for people who are scared by the idea of getting in the water with something that's bigger than they are, uh, without exception, almost without exception, these fish are harmless. And the only time that you would get hurt by one is if you actually catch it and then are not careful handling it. They're big. They can flop on you. They can bump you. The stingray have a venomous barb that they only use for defensive purposes. So if you were to catch one and not be careful or step on it or something, then you might get hurt. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I loved how you said that you think they're beautiful and you love them. And I 
and learning more about uh, giant fish uh, and prep for this interview, but then also uh, in watching your show and just being fascinated. I'm, I st- study mammals more. So whenever I, I get out of my mammal zone, I get a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm an animal nerd. I love nature in general. And obviously you do as well. But Zeb, I'm wondering if you could maybe touch on if you can't get behind the fact that these fish are ancient, incredible, and rare, and they're endangered, how could you talk to our listeners, or maybe our listeners could then talk to their family members about why should we care to save them and or save fresh water? Why is that important? Big fish, all fish, but especially these big fish, are indicators of river health. So if we're able to keep the fish big fish in the river, it means the river is healthy. Uh, it's still functioning in a natural way. It's not polluted. If you protect the big fish, the big fish tend to be the most vulnerable. They have the highest economic value. So they're harvested first. They need the most space. So they, you know, if the river is, for example, dammed, they're a lot of times the first fish to go. So if, if you can keep the big fish in the river, you're keep. A lot, most of the time, you're keeping everything sort of under them. They're what we call an umbrella species. If you can protect them, you're also protecting most of the other life in the river at the same time. So protecting these big fish, they're an indicator of river health. Uh, you're protecting the rest of the biodiversity, aquatic biodiversity in the river. And it also benefits us because we need healthy rivers for our own purposes. In places where you see these fish have disappeared, you know, it, uh, the lower Colorado, these fish are gone from the lower Colorado. Well, the lower Colorado doesn't flow anymore. So there's it's been dammed, all the water's being used upstream. And so those big fish have disappeared because there's no longer water in the river. And so there's no longer water for people either. So it's it's a challenge. It can be a challenge to find ways for us to use fresh water that we need but also leave enough in rivers and lakes for aquatic life. And that's, a, it is a big challenge, but if we can meet that challenge, it benefits both the fish and us. A lot of times with yeah. these, a lot of times with these fish, you know, people ask what they can do or, um, are there some hope spots? Are there some places where these fish are doing well? And almost without exception, it's when people, um, know about the fish, they care about the fish, and somehow they've grouped together. People have come together to take action to protect rivers and lakes and the fish that occur there. Um, yeah, so it's, it really it really takes everyone coming together, being knowledgeable, and taking action. Well, yeah, and that actually leads me into my next question: Is I, I mean, have you seen in your career uh, some good actions put into place to help conserve these mega fish? Is Is there hope? Are things being done in different countries? Well, here in the U.S., but then also internationally as well? 100%. A few examples of that, dam removals. So what we're doing now in the U.S., dams can cause a lot of problems for fish. They block spawning migrations. They change the flow of the river. And fish use uh, environmental cues like flow to figure out when to migrate, when to spawn. when fish spawn, the young fish a lot of times will use flow to disperse downstream. So anyway, dams can cause a lot of problems. In the U.S. now, we've been building dams for so long that there are now a lot of obsolete dams, dams that 
don't produce electricity or very much electricity anymore are not used for their whatever reason they were built a hundred years ago. They're no longer um, really fulfilling that function anymore. And so what we've done in the U.S. more and more with these old obsolete dams is remove them and open the river back up for fish like salmon and sturgeon that um, there's the Elwha River in Washington State. White Salmon River, I think, is also in Washington State. There's the Penobscot um, in Maine. And these are all rivers where dams have been removed and fish have been able to come back upriver. And I think everyone has been surprised by the speed that fish populations have recovered as a result of these dam removals. So that's been a really um, positive recent within the last 10 years or so, a uh, positive action. Another example, I'll give you two more examples. Another example is in northern Wisconsin. There's a lake called Lake Winnebago. And in Lake, Win lake Winnebago is home to one of the last or healthiest populations of lake sturgeon. It's a freshwater sturgeon. It can get over 200 pounds. They can live over 100 years old. And it's a very slow-growing fish. They don't reproduce in, until their teens. Um, wow, so, they, yeah. so they need a long time to grow. They need a long time to mature. And the fishery, there's actually a harvest fishery in, in Lake Winnebago, but that fishery has been managed uh, sustainably for decades. And so the scientists there and the communities there, they, they know how many fish are in the lake and the system. They know how many can be harvested each year. And so that's a sustainable fishery and one of the healthiest populations anywhere in the world. The last example uh, you know, it, and these issues are evolving as people get more awareness about, you know, and kind of fall in love with these fish, perceptions and attitudes change. But in the southern part of the U.S., there's alligator gar, and alligator gar was perceived as an ugly trash fish, not good for sport fishing, not really kind of not good for anything, scary looking, and there weren't regulations in place to protect them. They're a very, they can live up to hundred years also. So they're very long lived fish. They need protection in order to thrive and some type of regulation. And so just recently there, people are starting to appreciate, Hey, this is North America's one of North America's largest fish. It's an ancient fish. They live forever and live, live a long time. Fascinating. And so now there are regulations in place to protect alligator populations. And that's just happened within the last 10 years or so. Well, that's all. I mean, that's incredible news. And I and like you said, how quickly some of these populations can rebound is pretty hopeful. Uh, Zeb, what about internationally? Uh, is there any examples of uh, freshwater conservation happening overseas or is it just different because of uh, international challenges? There are positive examples overseas as well. Again, it's when people have come together to take action. One example that comes to mind right away is in Mongolia. So Mongolia is home to a giant trout species called the taimen. It uh, can get six feet long, weigh up to 200 pounds. Typically these days you see them up to about 100 pounds, but it's a, a trout. I mean, they're in relatively small rivers that, that can get up to five or six feet long. Beautiful fish. Uh, in spawning season, it has kind of a coppery red 
or, or a green body and then a coppery red tail with big black spots all along its body. It's a really cool, pretty fish. yeah. In Mongolia, about 10 years ago, uh, the Mongolian government and people in Mongolia recognized that it was a vulnerable fish and made all uh, fishing for taimen catch and release. So it used to be legal to harvest them, which was difficult on these fish. They're only about 20 uh, adult fish per river kilometer. And the really big fish can be 50 or 60 years old. They tend to hang out in the same stretch of river. And so there was an appreciation that if you're taking those big fish out of the river, it would take decades to get them back. And so the regulations were changed and now all fishing is catch and release. Uh, so that was a really good sign. Um, in places like Australia, uh, this is a, a little bit of a different take on protecting the fish, but there's an appreciation of something called environmental flows, which is, hey, we're regulating all of our rivers. We have dams everywhere. We're regulating rivers for water supply and for irrigation. And, but let's try to manage the rivers in a way that mimics Mother Nature, mimics the natural system. So if normally there are high flows at a certain time of year, we'll try to mimic those high flows. If normally there's, there are low flows, we'll mimic those. So in Australia, there have been really leaders in this idea of environmental flows and trying to mimic natural flows so that fish can complete their life cycle. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's always good to know that there are people fighting for the fresh waters, fighting for of course, the mega fish, but then as well as just freshwater fish and the freshwater that they inhabit. And so I, I know you have tons of examples and a lot of stories from your travel and a lot of knowledge because you've been doing this for so long and have seen, uh, seen a lot. And so as we switch gears here, I, I, I'm just really excited to talk about your book, um, so I'm, I was wondering, Zeb, if you could set the stage for our listeners about your new book, Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what's in the book and what our readers can find and what excites you about it. I have a new book out. It's called Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. It's available now on Amazon. Not going to be officially released until... Um, the end of April. I'm not sure when this podcast will air, but so it's available. It's already available even today. So it's available for purchase on Amazon. It's uh, took 10 years to write. And it well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a long and a long time in the making and it's, you just have to feel I'm, I'm happy for you. What an accomplishment. That's just incredible. Yeah. It's very exciting that it's finally out. And the book is the story of these big fish. It's the story of the search for the world's largest fish. And the book does have a satisfying end uh, without saying more, but it's the, it's the story of these big fish. And it's it, with a book, um, all the information and all the stories are in one place. So for example, with the television shows, each show is a different location. We only had two weeks, only focus on one species. In the book, we're able to take readers all around the world and learn about the issues, these, you know, learn what is a, a giant freshwater fish? Where do they occur? What do they look like? Um, why are they important? What threats do they face? What are solutions for their protection? So that the book kind of spans the, around the world and tells a story of these fish and, and where they're found and, and what we can do to help them. Um, it was, yeah, it was a lot of 
fun to write. I didn't know what I was getting into um, initially, but um, I worked with a National Geographic writer that I've traveled with and worked for a long time named Stefan Lovegren. He's co-author. And so Stefan and I have been traveling together um, since we first started doing the shows. And so he has a lot of um, experience with this as well. And it was fun to go back and forth and write it together. Yeah. I mean, and I'm a big believer, as much as I love the episodes of Monster Fish that I've watched, I am a huge believer and the book is always better, right? There's more details in the book. It takes you on a more, a bigger journey and you can really immerse yourself in the experience. And so I, whenever anybody says, oh, you should watch this show or watch this movie, I will make sure that the that if there is a book, I always read the book before I immerse myself into the into the um, the TV programming or movie programming. So I'm just super excited uh, to share this opportunity with my listeners to just really, pardon the pun, but really dive on in with these giants and and learn from your years of experience. And like you said, not only their natural history, but why we should fight for them, what is happening, solutions. I love, obviously, solution-backed science. And so I'm just really happy to be talking about it today on the podcast. And with that, Seb, it leads me to, to wonder and ask that as a scientist, a National Geographic host, and now an author, yay, uh, What? how do you hope that your work impacts the world and the future of uh, big fish? That's a good question. I'm going to answer it in a roundabout way. So I, when I, I think Jaws, the movie Jaws, uh, oh, I out. know it. Yes. Yeah. So I want to say I was like three or something. I was very young when it came out and I saw it when I was much too young to be seeing that show because it terrified me. But I, I just bring this up because you think about the way that we perceived sharks like great whites um, 40 years ago and when the, when the movie Jaws came out and, you know, Sharks were being overfished. They still are, but sharks, you know, were underappreciated. They were feared. They were not being managed very well. They were not the focus of conservation efforts. And, you know, since Jaws, and there, there's been a sea change. There's been such a change in people's perception of sharks, growing appreciation. Uh, whale sharks, the three largest sharks now, whale sharks, basking shark, and great white, are protected um, by international law. And so that change that I've seen in my life, I'm using sharks as, as an example, of just such a change in a perception, appreciation, and the level of protection those creatures are afforded. You know, that's what I'm really hoping for with freshwater fish as well. So we're not quite there yet. We still don't know very much about a lot of these big fish. They're not protected. Uh, people perhaps don't appreciate them as much as they do other animals. But I think with television shows, uh, with the book that I just finished, and with the work other people are doing, you know, this is took hundreds of people, um, fishermen and scientists and communities all over the world to do the shows and to write the book. So with this collective um, effort and raising awareness about the fish, I hope that that leads to growing appreciation and protection. And I think that's where we're headed. That's certainly where I hope we're headed. Yeah. And so, Zeb, do you have any advice for somebody that is listening to this podcast or knows somebody that really loves uh, fish, fish biology, freshwater systems? Uh, 
what's your advice for somebody who who wants to uh, get into a career like that? I, follow your interest. Uh, I I think I had a pretty standard um, trajectory, which was you know do well in school. I think that it's not mandatory, but it helps. Um, you know, do do well in school. I um, as, as an undergrad, I focused on ecology, focus on biology. I mean, I think that the basics as you're starting off, um, try hard, do well, sort of follow your passion in school. But then on top of that, look for opportunities outside of school and outside of a traditional framework as well. So, you know, if there are opportunities to get out on the outside on a river or volunteer in an aquarium or really whatever i mean the the sky's the limit um and everyone's going to have different opportunities depending on their personal situation and where they're living i was in the desert and so i tried to make the most of where i was and what off you know and i ended up volunteering in an aquarium across the country so uh, sometimes you just have to try to make it work but um for people, I do get people who ask, hey, how can I become a TV host? I, you know, probably start with, with school and trying to figure out what interests you and do, do a good job. Um, and then if you work hard and do a good job, usually one thing will lead to another. W- one thing that's really served me well, and I don't know if I've, um, I think I probably say this again and again, but just, you know, trying to, see opportunities um, for wherever you can. So just really um, saying yes to things and looking for ways to be involved and looking for ways to contribute can go a long way. I know with my students, the students that are involved, the students for volunteer for things. um, I have one student and she just says yes to everything. Anytime we need help in the field, anytime there's anything going on, she's there and she, I can tell already she's going to go far. Absolutely, Zeb. I, um, I always tell my students like say yes whenever possible. Keep opening those doors because even if you think you exactly know what you want to do, having a new experience will sometimes actually shift your overall goal or give you a new opportunity that you didn't really even know you wanted. So, um, but yes, it's, I mean, like I, as you mentioned, I think it's an exciting time for freshwater conservation, for fish biology. Uh, people are starting to pay attention and think that these river monsters are more like giant cuties, right? Like they're not really monsters. They're, uh, these, they're beautiful, as you described uh, in, in detail a little bit ago. And yeah, so- definitely. Def- definitely the stingray. Uh, there's one video online of a release of one of the giant stingrays. If I, you probably Google release giant stingray Cambodia or something. And there's a release of this stingray and it lifts its snout as it's swimming off. And yeah, it's just a, a big cutie. You, you reminded me of one last story, which was about opening doors and taking opportunities. I had a student uh, who was in Cambodia, visiting Cambodia last year. And fishermen called our project, said, hey, we have a giant stingray. Can you come out and tag it and release it? They called at like 6 p.m. So this is, and they were eight hours across the country. And so my student and the team, but she was volunteered 
to drive overnight and go out and release this fish. They stayed up all night. They got there the next morning. They released the fish. And she took a photo of the stingray. uh, And that photo was in Nature Magazine, the photo of the month. The best science photo of the month uh, in Nature Magazine. The best scientific journal, first of all, uh, pretty much hands down. (laughs) And then the best, that's incredible. And so, you know, that was pure, that was just, I say it was chance, but you know, she took the initiative to do that. I could never have predicted that that would have happened, but that those, you know, if you say, if you say yes and you take advantage of opportunities when they come up, good things happen. Yeah. My late father used to always say it's a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck, but if you don't have the hard work as the foundation, then the luck that comes will not necessarily benefit you as much. And so, yeah, that's, no, that's a great, great story as we come to a close here. And Zeb, I just want to ask a few last questions. And number one, for somebody that's listening to this podcast uh, and they are excited about mega fish and freshwater conservation, what can someone do to help make a difference without traveling to Thailand or uh, volunteering as an intern? What can somebody do when they're basically sitting on their couch? Take an interest, be informed. These freshwater fish for most people, they're a new animal. Uh, most people uh, aren't that familiar with them. And so I think that the most important first step is take an interest, learn, be informed, get online, buy the book, watch the shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then all of these fish depend on healthy rivers, healthy environments. So supporting, you know, any activities that keep rivers and lakes clean is also very important. And then ultimately, this maybe is a little bit further down the line, but all of these fish depend on active human involvement for their protection and for their survival. So at some level, wherever you are, most people, wherever they are, there are these big fish around. And so it is possible to help them get involved and and be part of the solution. Yes. No, I love that. And then lastly, uh, Zeb, I need to know how do we get our hands on Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish? And if listeners do want to stream Monster Fish, is that still available? Uh, And or do you have any social media platforms where listeners can follow you in your journey? Monster Fish is still streaming on some shows are on Disney. uh, Some, I think, are on Hulu. Some are on National Geographic. A few, I believe, are even available for free online on YouTube. I don't know exactly how that works, but uh, that, that might be a good place to start for people who haven't watched the show before. Uh, the, the book, Chasing Giants, In Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish, is available now on Amazon. If you're an Amazon uh, member, you can get it a day or two uh, after you order it. So it just shows up right at your doorstep. So that's by far the easiest way to get it. And for people who'd like to learn more about what I'm doing right now. The the main project I'm working on is called Wonders of the Mekong. It's all about fish and biodiversity and freshwater in the Mekong region. And we have a very active Facebook page, um, Wonders of the Mekong on Facebook. We're posting almost every day and people can see videos about fish and other work that we're doing in Southeast Asia. 
Awesome, Zeb. Well, I will make sure to put all of those links on our show notes for our listeners. And we'll also be uh, promoting your book to our listeners because I just think the more we get the word out there about how beautiful and rare these big fish are, the more people will get excited about them. It's all about education, as you mentioned earlier. And so we want to we want to help monster fish and the fresh waters that they swim in as much as possible. So uh, consider us now part of the team, part of the mega fish team. And, um, and, you know, with that being said, I do have to ask one last question for my son. Are there any hints of more episodes of Monster Fish or something similar in the future? We are working on a new show. Uh, it's not 100% certain right now, but we're trying. Well, Zeb, you definitely have our vote. We would like more of those freshwater fish shows, that's for sure, especially in my family. And I think I speak for a lot of people. So we're definitely going to give you a follow on social media and stay um, updated as to what you're doing uh, and your research. And uh, yes, I just I really appreciate you taking the time to share your journey and help get us excited today about mega fish and just how important they are for the environment and how beautiful they are. Uh, and so thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to talking to you in the future. Uh, potentially if there's another series or another book. Uh, and yeah, I just, I'd like to keep this conversation going to keep fish in general, freshwater uh, in, in the public's eye and attention because they are so important for the environment. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for your time today. And uh, I look forward to talking again in the future. Thank you. Bye. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.